It's April 17th, 2012, and Doug and Andy are chatting it up. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This week, we chatted up with Doug in Portland and Andy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, getting ready for a production of August Osage County, April 25th through May 13th at the Fulton Theater. Tickets available online, thefulton.org. Hi, Doug. How you doing? Oh, boy, I'm doing pretty good. We've had uh, quite a few events uh, the past couple weeks, and uh, so just kind of in the midst of that uh, right now. We've got some good ones coming up, too. Great. I wasn't able to make it to the Humanity on Wheels because, of course, I don't currently reside in Oregon. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? How'd it go? Do you want me to talk about how bicoastal you are? Is that is that what you're getting at? I'm, the... I'm bicurious, I think, is probably <laughs> more more accurate but okay. um uh, yeah as far as humanities on wheels humanity on wheels went it was a fantastic turnout of course we partnered with uh trimet diaries for that trimetdiaries.com wonderful blog about all things bus and max and yeah we had a great turnout it was literally not a chair to be had as there were too many people standing in addition to the seats and heard lots of great stories and it was just a good opportunity to get together and talk a bit about the bus. Yeah, clearly putting a lot of people in a small area, i.e. a bus, the max, uh, generates situations worth talking about. Absolutely, and I think we're going to have a live episode of that show posted up on our website at some point in the future. So yes, if people absolutely. missed it, they'll... If people missed it, they'll get a chance to check that out and give it a listen. Cause, and uh, there's that... a, there are clips uh, of the talk about on YouTube. We've already posted a link to that on the website. I know that. That's right. It was featured in uh, OregonLive.com, was, uh, did a little review on it, and they had some – there's some pretty bad video, but still uh, people can get a kind of a feel of, of how it all went down. So it was a good time, absolutely. Great, great. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other things that we've been doing before we move into the future. We just released on April 1st our podcast about the 1901 plague in Astoria. And, and what a plague it and was. And what, what a plague it was. Very interesting. I, I appreciated that uh, the Commodore Hotel, which is mentioned uh, in a sinister manner inside of uh, the podcast, uh, tweeted about uh, the podcast and, the, and how the cupola of the hotel is still available and still uh, sending signals out to the deep. Yeah, and, and it generated the unique hashtag of Lofty Cupola, too, which I thought was, was a wonderful, wonderful shout-out. Yes, yeah, so a feather in the, the grammar nerd's hat or vocabulary <laughs> nerd's hat, I guess, if you want to do it that way. So that'll work. 
Yeah, that was that was just wonderful that we got a chance to uh, to talk about the Great Plague. And if people are unfamiliar with uh, with that happening, they should absolutely take a listen to that podcast. Yes, um, and you know it's very surprising how that all shook out. It's it seemed very strange to me. I that uh, a little this, fishy, one might say. A little fishy. Well, this was a new perspective on on an old tale. Robert Olmsted's undiscovered journal entry, and uh, boy, is it is it enlightening. Yes, very very dramatic he was. Mm, mm. Uh, so let's. I want to bust into a, what may become a new feature on these live podcasts. Uh, your well, our intern Melissa. She has two. She, she has two minutes, a pair yeah. of minutes, to talk about whatever it is she wants to talk about. Is that how it works? Yeah, you know, she uh, wants to look at some kick-ass Oregon history, and so we're kind of narrowing it down to to just a little topic that she can look at in two minutes. She has only two, only two minutes to discuss this topic, and, uh, you know, when she's not busy out getting us Krispy Kreme and uh, cheap beer and designing really kick-ass sets for our live shows, uh, this is how she spends her time. So I think we've got a clip here on uh, Chinook Jargon. And she found some very interesting Confederate Civil War connections with the code. When you hear the word Civil War, Oregon history doesn't usually come to mind, but in fact several officers trained at Fort Vancouver. Some of the officers you might know for the North are Indecisive McClellan and Babyface Ulysses S. Grant, not yet endowed with that kick-ass Portland beard. For the South, there's George Crittenden and George Pickett, famous for his suicidal charge at Gettysburg. While in Oregon Territory, these soldiers became familiar with what was called Chinook jargon, and in the Civil War used the language as code in correspondences. Chinook jargon, primarily based on the tribal Chinook language of the people who lived along the Lower and Middle Columbia River, mixed other regional native words along with British and French. While the language was a trade tool, it was also a social language used sometimes between Anglo men and their native wives, and was often then picked up by their children. By 1857, 100,000 people spoke the language. When Meriwether Lewis encountered the Chinook, he noted in his diaries that their jargon contained English words like musket, powder, knife, as well as son of a bitch and damn rascal. The jargon also included the Bostons to mean Americans and an interesting word called Pelton. In 1811, when the Astoria Land Party was traversing in the Oregon Territory, they stumbled upon a Connecticut man by the name of Archibald Pelton. Probably delirious from trauma, Pelton acted deranged and disoriented. Local Indians took up the wanderer's name to mean foolish, crazy, or bad shit. One of the more interesting examples that I dug up of the jargon used as code in the Civil War was a Lieutenant Colonel Edward Alexander, who was in charge of the Confederate Southern Signal Corps, and who supposedly organized Southern spirings. In a July 10, 1861 letter to his family, Alexander wrote, I feel a little hesitation in committing any information about our plans and forces to paper, but I would tell you a little under oath not to divulge to anyone but Brother or Mr. Founds. And using the jargon, he encrypted, Why does the big chief, meaning President Davis, not withdraw with regards to Washington? It does not reduce the spirit to escape. He remains in the belly and may lose all if the wicked Bostons come. So basically... Alexander is being critical of Davis's choice to squat in Washington, which likely would have appeared seditious in the South in the Civil War, hence the code. Wow, that was interesting. Wasn't it? There was a, there was a, a nice take on it that she, that she got there uh, talking about the Confederate codes. I, I really like that. 
I like, too, that she talked about uh, Archibald Pelton and how Pelton became a word in uh, Chinook gar- jargon to mean batshit. Um, so that was something that I hadn't heard before that I really liked. Also appreciate that son of a bitch was a Chinook jargon word. Yeah, and dirty rascal too, right? So uh, yeah, that's that's she did a really good job on that, and I'm really appreciative for the research. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave it up to you, dear ass kicker, the listener. Uh, on the link to this podcast on our Facebook page, what we'd like you to do is go on there and use the Facebook machine. Uh, to vote if you think Melissa did a kick-ass job or not. If she did, I'd like you to like it. And uh, if she did not, I want you to write in the comments no and why it was less than kick-ass. So, um, you know, and ultimately we may modify her pair of minutes. if uh, Augment it. Exactly. If people view that it was not uh, such a kick-ass time. So... Um, what, what do you think of that, Andy? Little what, context. What percentage do you suppose she needs? I mean, is it just a simple majority? Oh yeah, absolutely, a simple majority. Yeah, yeah. So Chinook Wawa, I just wanted to give a quick segue. Uh, is still a living language, um, not the trade jargon, but the original Chinook that it was based upon. And there are language gatherings at Portland State University in the Native American uh, Student and Community Center on Southwest Jackson Street. They happen every Tuesday afternoon and every Friday afternoon. So if people are interested in the language and maybe learning some of it, uh, they could drop in on that and chat with some folks who could help them out with some resources. Cool. So come for the drum circle, stay for the Wawa. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a good experience down there and give folks a chance to to connect with that community. Cool. Cool. When we did this before, we asked listeners to send in questions about previous episodes, and you got a question about uh, Danford Balch. That's correct. A gentleman named Brock, uh, who has a wonderful podcast of his own called The Sprocket Podcast. They talk about bicycles and living simply. And he was out on a bicycle trip, and he was out in Dufer, Oregon. And out in Dufer is an establishment named the Balch Hotel. So at the hotel, they have a photograph of the Balch House, which is in Beverly, Massachusetts. And Brock took a picture of this photograph. He asked the proprietor of the hotel in Oregon if uh, the old Balch House was related to Danford Balch. The Oregon proprietor did not know. So I went ahead and uh, did a little research into this space. And I'm willing to share it with you if you are interested. I'm absolutely interested. Riveted on the edge of your seat, I, I assume? Well, actually, I'm sitting back comfortably, but um, I can scooch forward if you'd like. So the old Balch house was built by John Balch, who, as far as we can tell, was the original Balch immigrant to the United States. John Balch landed in the United States, of course, when it was a British colony in 1623, and he built the old Balch house, which is one of the oldest wooden structures in the United States. So I dug around quite a bit on some of the genealogy sites. Uh, Of course, Danford Balch was originally from Massachusetts. 
He was born in November of 1811 in Colerain, Massachusetts. Another source says Connecticut, but it's strong enough for me to say New England, absolutely. Uh, but mind you, uh, 150 years after John Balch built the house, so I traced it back a bit, and there was five generations uh, from John Balch's line until folks started being born in his line in 1811. I was unable to find a connection with our favored Balch, Danford in his genealogical line. That is to say it isn't there, but uh, getting back to, uh, to Brock's question, was the old Balch house uh, related in any way to Danford Balch? I'm going to give it a solid, resounding, most likely no. <laughs> Negatively inconclusive. <laughs> Negatively inconclusive, exactly. But nonetheless, uh, Brock is from, again, the Sprocket podcast. Uh, they look at bicycles and living simply, and he is working on an early Portland bicycle history project that I believe will be in a podcast format. So if you have anything on that, make sure that you hit him up with your info. And of course, uh, Kick-Ass Oregon History, that's the project that we're going to look forward to uh, the completion of. So yeah, certainly check out the Sprocket podcast and keep those questions coming. I love the follow-up to a previous podcast to have a little bit more information and to put you on the spot. Once again, I understand that there was someone took our advice at the end of the Bobby, the wonder dog episode. We invited people to go and visit Bobby and it has happened. And I'm wondering if you would tell the tale. Yeah, so there's this dude, and I'm not going to reveal his name uh, because it's it's a very distinct name, and he may want some discretion in this. I don't know, but he was going on a date, so he chose to take this lady, or who knows, maybe it could be a dude, to Bobby the Wonder Dog's grave for the site of their date. And we recommended that people walk there. Um, I know that he and his date took bicycles. So that's, that's – don't you think that's pretty good, Andy, bicycles? I as, think that's uh, great. I thought, I thought maybe you were going to say they drove there and then took ATVs from the car to the gravesite. <laughs> just, that would have been better. <laughs> just as a fuck you to Bobby the Wonder Dog. <laughs> No, that would have been better. Uh, but no, they, they, they bicycled to the site. So it, it kind of made me think a little bit, you know, especially with the summer months coming on and, you know, uh, nice evenings about. I was hoping that maybe people could go on dates to some Oregon historical sites. And if they like, send us a photo and we'll put it on the web and we'll have a little it'll be kind of like a follow up to the orgasm podcast you know we'll have a little love in oregon session uh on the web and uh people could go ahead and send us those photos of their of their romantic interludes in our state what do you think i think that's great particularly as a connection to the orgasm podcast because you listen to that and it puts you in the mood it absolutely does it absolutely does Let's talk a little bit about some upcoming events and podcasts. Uh, we got some great news today about an upcoming podcast involving the Bigfoots. Yeah. And I understand that we have a sponsor for that. Yeah. Uh, Jack London Bar will be sponsoring the Bigfoot podcast. So that's a wonderful relationship that uh, we have cultivated on. It's, it's not really like a marriage. I feel it's kind of more like an illicit affair. 
you know. Uh, but yeah, this that's an affair that we've uh, been working on for quite some time, and they're interested in sponsoring that podcast. So hopefully that's going to come about. Well, I think it's important, though, that we state at this point very clearly that what is going to be attempted on the podcast, meaning you and Melissa, the intern, um, and Chad Torrey, and, and Chad Torrey, going out and looking for big feats. This, this is we're not condoning this. It's part of the research process. It has to be done. It's very dangerous, and um, our listeners, of course, will benefit from the results of this either by having me post your obituaries on the website or mm -hmm. having recordings of it or photographs of what is obviously a blurry, ape-like creature mm -hmm. taking mm -hmm. a pee next to your car. Exactly. I, I'm so excited. I'm also dreadfully terrified, like at, at my core of uh, running into the – because I remember the $6 million man. And uh, uh, the the evils that that we could encounter out there. Yes, that that's a that was a dangerous matchup. It was almost more than Steve Austin could handle. Yeah, almost. But I mean, it's Steve Austin, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh -huh. I'm sure we're going to have the audio clip or two of that in our in our Bigfoot's podcast. So <laughs> I look forward to sorting through the raw audio from that uh, recording session. <laughs> Do you realize how much beer will be consumed in looking for big feats? <laughs> uh, a lot. Mm. But we also have another event coming up in uh, May. May 11th at 7 p.m. We're partnering with Fifth Avenue Cinema down at Portland State University. And we are going to show a virgin 16-millimeter print of the 1970 film, The Seventh Day. And The Seventh Day chronicles the PSU Park Block riot that happened on May 11th, 1970, between Portland police and dirty hippie protesters when they clashed and scores were sent to the hospital as a result from that. So I'm going to be speaking at the event. Also, uh, PSU professor David Horowitz, who was a professor at PSU during the May 1970 confrontation, it's going to be giving his perspective as well. We're going to have a live sitar player just to make sure that everybody stays mellow, man. And we're going to have beer and wine available for sale. So it's going to be a fantastic event. It's only 5 bucks, May 11th, 7 p.m., Fifth Avenue Cinemas, 510 Southwest Hall Street. Now, you've got a pretty good primer on those riots on the website in the project section, right? Absolutely. We have a, a documentary reader uh, that I did a few years ago. I'm well-versed in the subject, so I'm really, really looking forward to talking about it uh, on May 11th. There you have it, ass kickers. Thank you for listening. Be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. Be sure to visit that website. 
There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can also pick up Oregon History merchandise, learn about upcoming Oregon History events, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And remember, coming up on May 11, 2012 at 7 p.m., Kick-Ass Oregon History is proud to partner with Fifth Avenue Cinema to present The Seventh Day, a Portland State University student film about the May 1970 confrontation between the Portland police and a bunch of hippie protesters. We'll watch the film, listen to a few speakers, and have live sitar by Josh Feinberg to keep you all mellow, man. There'll be beer and wine available for sale and the best popcorn in town. Fifth Avenue Cinema is located at 510 Southwest Hall, and the program is only $5. Why don't you come on down on Friday, May 11th at 7 p.m. for the seventh day? Just steer clear of the police baton demonstration by Doug. He's got a hell of a reach. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Can you hear my refrigerator kick in? <laughs> I wondered if that was mine. Yeah. No, no. I'm 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 blatantly in the kitchen of my apartment <laughs> in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, that is hilarious.